Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It, where we talk tech and hardware and software and security and everything in between and increasingly just gossip about VC because apparently <laughs> that's what tech is these days. On the on the mics with me, I've got Paul, Paul Callahan. Thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight. Hey, Laura. How are you going? Um, I'm all right. Do you, want right. to, do you feel like gossiping about VC with me I tonight? I always feel like gossiping about everything. <laughs> but if we have to narrow it down, let's do VC. Excellent. My my kind of show. I'm so there. And um, Daniel Salmon. Dan, thank you for coming along. Thank you for having me. It's so, always great to be with you guys. Oh, I'm so stoked for the show. We have so much juicy stuff to get into. And not just VC. And not just VC. <laughs> seriously. I'm also with you. My name is Laura Summers. Um, tonight on the show, we have an interview with Vanessa Teague, who is a professor at Melbourne Uni, and her colleague Chris Colnane about their research on de-identifying the Mikey dataset that was released in 2018. Tech has been an increasingly integral part of public transport, and it's really interesting to see how well or not well we're doing with dealing with the sort of um, ramifications of this big data that gets produced from users. Um, users using the systems. Um, so I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what their work was about and what that taught us about releasing a, a data set like that for you know ostensibly good purposes, but potentially not so great. Um, but before then, we have tons of news to get through. So let me throw straight to you, Paul. I saw an interesting thing about this weird little robot from Boston Dynamics that everyone's into. What's going on there? Yeah, so uh, if you've, I, I presume everybody in the world has seen uh, the videos of Boston Dynamics Spot Robot. They're sort of creepy dog thing. Um, it's got around. such a weird flat back. It's like yeah. it's like it's like legs and then nothing. It's 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 interesting because the the reason we're sort of the new it's in the news is because if you want one you can ask them to get one. Um, so they're available not for purchase. Um, Boston Dynamics are going to lease them to people um, because they want to figure out what they can be used for. Um, so they're going to talk to companies uh, and people, and also interestingly places like Cirque du Soleil um, to see how Boston Dynamics robots might be used. Uh, in I wonder performance. if the if the spot's going to be doing backflips or if they're going to be poking it with a stick, like, so, or maybe both. <laughs> So um, the other thing that Boston Dynamics, and um, we'll sort of come back to Spot in a second, but the their Atlas robot, their bipedal one, mm-hmm. um, can do gymnastics now. It can do forward rolls, it can do flips, uh, it can do jumping twists. Um, That's it's it, pretty, the robots are officially better than people. It's better than me. <laughs> it happened. Uh, it's way better than me. You can do a handstand, I can't do a handstand. Mm. Um, so that video just came out today. So Boston Dynamics were on a bit of a roll. Um, the thing that that I found really interesting in sort of the articles is that because they're talking about trying to figure stuff out, uh, there's a comment that um, uh, one of the, the senior people at Boston Dynamics said, which is, uh, uh, you still human workers still have to adapt to Spot. Um, you still need to use a controller to maneuver Spot around so it can kind of build up a model of the environment. But the, the mm-hmm. interesting quote is, that really contradicts a lot of people's expectations, particularly after seeing some of our YouTube videos, <laughs> which Boston Dynamics clearly put out, mm-hmm. you know, and said this thing is completely autonomous. So it's interesting that they're kind of looping back on these ideas. Mm-hmm. But if you want one and you have some ideas about what you might do with yeah. a, a semi-autonomous robot dog uh, around Melbourne... 
um, get in touch with them. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're going to be shipping over here, but it would be really rad to see someone with a robot dog in there on their warehouse floor or something, like, <laughs> taking 360-degree video. That just would be like fascinating. Just like down Swanston Street, just like on its bike. Uh, little doggo. He'll probably... <laughs> I just I just like went down a rabbit hole in my head where I imagine him getting hit by a tram and like flipping oh, onto no. his back. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was dark. Actually, good segue, talking of public <laughs> transport... <laughs> It's speaking of dark. Speak, and speaking of dark, yeah. exactly. Um, There's this, more, no, no, go, go down. So uh, we've got a, a bit of news uh, from the Hong Kong protests uh, that have been going now for the last 16 or so weeks. Um, the largest bus company in Hong Kong, KMB, has been... Uh, ordered by the Hong Kong police to hand over transaction records from Octopus Cards, which Octopus is the Hong Kong uh, public transport card. They're Mikey, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this is, uh, you know, a little bit worrying because obviously, you know, most of these cards are registered to citizens and so they are able to track people who are moving around the city. And it's actually, you know, pretty pretty pertinent that we're going to be speaking to Vanessa and Chris about uh, the data set from Mikey uh, later on in the show. But um, these court orders that have been happening in Hong Kong uh, to obtain, they obtain the digital fare payment details, CCTV camera footage from people uh, getting on and off the buses. Um, and it's it's worrying because, you know, it's just the surveillance culture and particularly in some in a place that, you know, is rapidly becoming more authoritarian uh, by virtue of being slowly absorbed into the mainland Chinese system. Mm. Uh, it's it's worrying for the uh, people of Hong Kong for, for and for, you know, oh. data sets more broadly. Arguably, this is this is like um, exactly what they've been protesting against, right? Like this idea that they're going to be, um, you know, like at the mercy of this authoritarian system. And like the whole thing that they started protesting over was this idea of the extradition order to mainland China to be persecuted for any kind of um, anything that you might have done inside Hong Kong. So, yeah, look, certainly the idea that the police are trying to track the protesters. And I, I think also like just a little maybe silver lining here. This probably speaks to how well, how digitally savvy these protesters were that they managed to coordinate these massive efforts and obscure their faces and get there, do their thing, get out of there reasonably safely for the most part, except where the police were hitting them with batons. Mm. But, you know, for the most part, they managed to do what they were trying to do, which is like create these massive protests and not be tracked by the police. So this is kind of their last-ditch effort. Um, an additional thing, aside from the the bus data, is that they're also trying to force um, local businesses to preserve security footage, again, to try and track faces and, you know, do things like gate recognition so they can identify who these people are and then possibly persecute them in the future. So, it, it, And, you know, I think... If nothing else, it's a vindication of what they're protesting against. Yeah, no kidding. Like that, this is kind of behavior is definitely something to keep an eye on, and, and certainly something that we should be worrying about. If if ever you know any other governments go down the authoritarian track, and we might say in 2019 it's not that crazy. That's exactly it. But um, yeah, good luck to the people of Hong Kong in the future. We we are, we have you back, hopefully. Another piece of news that happened just recently, and I think we have to call it out because it's kind of a big deal, is um, this this guy, Richard Stallman, has exited the Free Software Foundation and also the MIT Media Lab. He is well known for being the open source, like FOSS open source media license guru. And he's been kind of this, uh, I should call him enfant terrible, if I accept my terrible French accent, <laughs> of, of like the open source movement for many, many years now. And his exit was grudging and possibly not very welcomed on his side. And But a lot of people are calling it a win. And a, lo- a lot of people are saying, well, too little, too late. But it's certainly a sign that something is going on 
in the like culture wars that is tech right now, right? Like, have either been following the story about Stallman and like, do you have any any vibe on whether this is a good thing or not? I'm not hugely across it, but um, I wouldn't mind hearing a bit more about the thing. Like, have you, have you got any kind of examples of the kind of I mean, things uh, that he's done? Uh, oh, yeah, state- sorry, sorry. 30 years worth of bad behavior is like yeah. the short answer. But but like um, recently uh, he was trying to argue in favor of Marvin Minsky, who's like possibly one of the Epstein pedophile people. So Marvin Minsky, also a tech titan, mm. also a like famous programmer. And he probably was one of the people who had sex with like slightly underage prostitutes via Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And then Richard Stallman felt the need to like double down on the fact that pedophilia needs to be redefined to be 16 versus 18 or and and, like he was basically arguing about semantics and not really like accepting that there's a cultural behavioral problem and and just kind of like, you know, identity protection and trying to like make it okay to be an old white dude in tech that is a little bit sexist still right so by the sounds of it is that a good summary yeah and also i think like the sort of flared up around specifically the epstein stuff most recently Mm. um and then his exit but then there was a revelation of lots of other you know like the continuum of like a continued behavior which you know goes down from you know you know, kind of explicit harassment down to just like making women feel uncomfortable and minorities feel uncomfortable and and different people. And it's kind of that tr- that tricky, slippery slope where it's like these all these smaller behaviors like clearly add up to become exclusionary. Mm. Um, and I think like there is like we talked a couple of weeks ago about how these similar events were definitely happening around games. Um, and it does mm, feel games having its me too moment. Yeah, in we were talking about that before mm. the show. Um, and it it sort of feels like as we were saying like a it's not as you know as as wired sort of put it this new era in tech it's mm. a small step in a much larger war um you know that that's my takeaway from it and mm. like there are more there are more stallmans out there Absolutely. And I think like, you know, one thing I will say I agree with from the Wired story is they talk about this idea of having a single unassailable leader as being like a flaw, a bug, not a feature. And I think that's, you know, the cult of personality is something that tech has been really kind of guilty of, of doing over and over again. And I think the idea that we need to have more distributed networks of power and maybe not put any one person up on a pedestal because that's never going to go great. And we're sort of seeing that, like, coming coming back to the VC gossip question. <laughs> you know, like, like the, yeah. the sort of the, the cult of the founder that startup culture mm-hmm. has really adopted, like, is, is just a slightly more overt, you know, step towards towards exactly that. And I think we need to be... Not just not just in tech, but our communities and our businesses and our entrepreneurship and our community structures, like mm. really, um, like vigilant against that stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. Triple R. You are listening to Bite Into It on Three Triple R on the last day of Radiothon. We're all very excited that we've had a great month. Um, and Laura. Yeah, we, we had an excellent um, party in here just before for the end of Radiothon and a bunch of volunteers were having a well-deserved um, piece of pizza and bevy, so that was nice to see. Very exciting. It's been a big month. They've had so much work to do, so yeah, I'm always impressed at all the, all the hard work the volunteers put in each year. Absolutely. So we have an excellent interview now. We have on the phone uh, Professor Vanessa Teague. Thank you so much for um, making the time to chat to us. Uh, Vanessa, are you there? Yep, yep. Hi, hi, and we also have oh, your, your colleague. Oh. oh, hi, hello. Hello. <laughs> so good to have okay? you on the show. We it's can a... hear you beautifully. Okay, good. 
Um, we also right. have in studio uh, your colleague, Chris uh, Colnane. Thank you so much for coming in to chat to us. Thank you. Good evening. Um, so you two worked on a um, paper that was released recently that was talking about this data set that was released in July 2018 containing 1.8 billion historical records of public transport users' activity to a group um, known as Data Science Melbourne for the use in their Melbourne Datathon. And so we've got you in the studio to talk about that work that you've been doing around re-identifying de-identified data. So perhaps one of you would like to start by just explaining what that means. <laughs> sure. Um, so basically, when data is made public, they try and protect the privacy in some way. And so they, they do a, a process called de-identification. Um, and if that works, then the data that is released should not be related to an identifiable person. So you shouldn't be able to get back to an individual's records. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at it, we're seeing whether that claim is true, basically. And right. what we test is if we can get back to an individual, then we've re-identified it and the data is therefore re-identifiable. Right. So, um, and, and as I understand it, that means that you could then potentially like be following an individual's behavior, watching them move around the city, possibly like work out where they work, um, other, other kinds of potentially malicious things if you, if you have that much information about where they go every day. Yes, so particularly in this case where it was over a three-year period. So once you identified one the person's card ID, you could track it through the entire three-year period. So you could find their travel patterns during the week, during the weekends, um, and you could also potentially see who they were traveling with. So that mm -hmm. reveals a whole series of interesting pieces of information, both about where you live, where you work, but also about your socializing patterns and things like that. Um, I read in the paper that this um, data set that was released was unusual because it was longitudinal. So it's taking a snapshot um, for a pretty big chunk of time and showing all the activity against all of the users in that time. Um, Vanessa, is that is that normal for people to release data like that? Or what, what made this different? Well, it's certainly not very clever. And it's exactly what causes the problem because the longitudinal nature of the data means that if you know a few facts about a person and a few points about where that person was and when, you can use those few facts to identify them and then retrieve their record. And because it's a very long, very detailed record, that gives you a whole lot of other information about the person that you didn't already know. Mm. Can you give us examples of what you might infer from having that much data about their, their movement? Well, it's exactly as Chris said. So you might have met a person on one occasion and travelled with them once. You might not necessarily know where they live or where they went on the weekend or anything else about them. But from a single tap on at the same time as someone, you can identify their record and hence retrieve three years' worth of their tap on and tap off, which gives you a tremendous amount of information about where they get on in the morning typically and where they get off in the evening and where they work and so on. And so, with, with that with that data, what was the what was the process of going of actually doing that de-identification? Like, what were the the steps, or what extra data did you have to to pull together in order to to figure out those specific patterns for people? Um, so, for finding ourselves, um, we just had to look up our times on the PTV website. So you can go back and you can see six months of your transaction history if you've registered your card. So, in our case, the first thing we did is we looked up two times from when we touched on, and immediately we found our card. So it only took two data points in order to uniquely identify ourselves. Um, in terms of what, when we looked for a co-traveller, um, I'd travelled with a colleague on one occasion after an evening seminar. So I just looked, I found my own card and looked for any card that touched on 
plus or minus five seconds on the same tram. And there were about five people. And knowing that he had a, a season ticket and roughly where he lived, I was able to find his from just one touch on. So in terms of additional information in that case, it's not that much. It's a few points. If you know, if you've traveled with them a couple of times, then potentially you've got a unique match to find their record. And so does that, that it sounds like that creates a ripple effect, whereas if you know yours and one other person, you can probably find, you know, a much larger set of people from that. Absolutely. As soon as you start to find one person and you find another person, then you can, for example, say, well, could we have all traveled together or could I look for people, for example, family relationships? When we looked at our own co-traveller um, events, I could see that I've co-traveled with Ben on a whole number of occasions, um, one of our other co-authors going to events in the city. But we could also see um, concessionary tr- cards for children so we could determine when Ben had been traveling with his kids. Um, and you can start to expand out from there as well. So, for example, who the children would travel with, um, parents beyond that, grandparents and things like that. Um, I'm curious. So this data set was released for a hackathon. What was what was the intention that what would people actually be able to do with this data? Like what what are they trying to achieve? Um, uh, like obviously we're, we're identifying all the ways this has gone wrong, but what were they hoping would be the good that would have come from people hacking on this data? So it wasn't exactly explicit as to what they were supposed to be deriving. In, in the data font is kind of open to what interesting analytics you can produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the concerns we have about it is that the, the return isn't clear when they release the data in that it, there's no definite goal that they have to get. It, a lot of it's to do with competitive things in terms of predictability or visualizations. And the question we would have is, is it really useful from the public point of view to release that data? In that if they were releasing information about trams moving around, I can understand the return on that. But it's not clear to me that there is a return for the public in having their own travel data out there. Mm. Um, and you, you identified one of the other pieces in the paper was that um, not only were you able to identify people that you had some sort of network effect with, like you might have seen them on the tram or you were traveling with them, um, but you were even able to identify complete strangers who you were not traveling with by linking their, their movements with public data, um, so linking it to other data sets like Twitter and Facebook. Um, can, you, can you talk about um, how, how you discovered that and how you were able to identify individuals just, just from like searching through sort of social media trails? Yes. So the important thing to understand about that is that it's not very hard and the person doesn't have to be very special or unusual. So the example that we chose to examine was a state MP by the name of Anthony Carbines, and he was very nice about it and um, happy enough for us to talk in public about his example. But one of the important lessons about his example is he's not uncommon. And even though he had tweeted a lot of stuff about exactly where he was travelling and when, we were able to show that it really would have only taken three tweets of that information, even for a completely ordinary person, to identify that person. So if you know, if somebody's tweeted three different times about three reasonably different places that they were in public transport, then they're identifiable in that data set. Now, it turns out that for state MPs, they're even easier to identify in the data set because they have a special type of card. So you probably know that there are full fare Mikey cards and a couple of different kinds of concession Mikey cards. Actually, there are 42 different kinds of Mikey cards, and one of them uh, is for state MPs. 
So the particular special type of Mikey car that is only used by state MPs makes state MPs particularly easy to identify. And in fact, there are a lot of train stations and other locations where there's really only where there's only one or two or a very small number of state MP cars that have ever touched on or off at that location. So most state MPs are probably pretty easy to identify if you know a little bit about where they travel. Um, Anthony Carbone's made a particularly useful study because there's a huge amount of information about him. But the bottom line is just about anybody, even if they weren't a special state MP card holder, would be identifiable based on about three points of information about them, assuming they were not at Flinders Street Station at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so it can be as simple as just tweeting about a, a train delay or, you know, the fact that you're going to work or, like, you're, you're meeting a friend, yeah. even meeting a friend outside of Flinders Street Station, you know, yeah. things which are particularly benign that yeah. can identify... I mean, the, the, more, the more other people are at the same place at the same time, the better hidden you are, right? right? So in the case of Anthony Carbine's, the three tweets that identified that would have identified him even if he hadn't been a state MP were one at Rosanna and one at Greensboro and one at a different, at Killor Park, I think it was, across in the western suburbs. So three stations where there weren't 10,000 people all there at the same time. I think if you were meeting a friend at Flinders Street Steps at 8.30 in the morning, that would probably not be terribly helpful information in identifying you. There'd probably need to be three or four other points as well. But if you've taken a handful of reasonably ordinary kinds of trips, then that is likely to be unique. And and that combined with that um, that process that we identified earlier of that kind of um, you know that halo effect of other people identifying. Do those things together does that does that reduce the number of data points or reduce the amount of information needed? Uh, yes, the, the more auxiliary information you right. can have, um, the, the easier it is to find someone. So if you imagine it's it's you start in a, a big crowd and you have that one point, and then what you're doing is you're intersecting it with other data points. So it's not normally highly kind of rare points that will identify the person. It's a sequence of fairly mundane events, but the times and dates that you've had them in that particular order is what identifies you. If you can then add in anything else which is going to reduce that set down, so you know the type of card they have or you know they were travelling with someone else, then you just reduce that down much quicker and you need fewer points in order to identify them. And, and is this something that that a layperson could could have do, could do now that now that the sort of the process is out there? Could 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 Laura and I go out and do this analysis? Oh, absolutely. So the it's basically a database query. That's all mm. you're doing. You're just adding an additional AND clause on your database query until you get a result of one. Um, so it's not difficult. The challenge is the quantity of data, getting it into the database and then running the query. But that's really something you could quite easily learn to do online. It's not a technical challenge. Um, and if you look at the kind of resources available on things like cloud infrastructure, then it's pretty easy that someone could easily load that data in there and then just run some queries until they find a unique result. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, we are we are in studio with Chris Colnane and myself, Laura and Paul and Dan, and also on the phone we've got Vanessa Teague still going on this Mikey thing. Um, so throwing it out to both of you, can you tell us a bit about how bad actors might exploit this data? 
that that is very easily re-identifiable? Like what, what can go wrong? Can you give us some use cases so we can make it real? Vanessa, would you like to tackle this one or shall I throw it to Chris? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there are a bunch of obvious applications about people that you wanted to meet once, but you didn't necessarily want to know where you live. So suppose you met someone in a public place, took public transport with them, went on a date with them and decided that you didn't want to meet them again. You may not necessarily want them to know what tram stop or train stop you get on and off at um, every morning and back in every evening. So that's one kind of obvious item about location privacy. You might be happy for somebody to know where you are on one or two occasions, but you don't want them to be able to find out where you live. That's fair. It's, it's that just like brought up a whole bunch of images in my mind of like not just not just people and dates, but also like the doxing thing, which is big in the states. Like people trying to send people to your house, or you know, like kind of DDoS, but in real life, right? It's it's quite scary yeah. thinking about how people can weaponize like your personal address. Mm. Um, exactly. And I think also in this case where they had very detailed card types, you could identify children's cards, which is something we were particularly concerned with, because they had cards which were issued to school children and then you'd be able to determine whether they were traveling alone or not um, additionally the um, australian federal police have a different type of card so there's sensitive work attributes in there as well which they probably don't want that information being out there mm. so it's it's there obviously is there's the individual case but there's also those who maybe are vulnerable and if you start revealing information about their travel patterns over three years People probably don't think they need to change their MyKey card if they move, for example, to get away from someone. But if they've travelled once in that three-year period, then potentially they can find out new information as well. Mm. It seems like the Victorian government possibly didn't think through the release of this data as much as they should have. (laughs) 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 Yeah, just just mildly perhaps. Um, Have you spoken to them about the results of your study? Do they know what, what you've found and how you've been able to work this data? Well, remember that the, the Victorian government is a, a diverse group of different people. So we spoke to the affected MP that we uh, identified and as an example, and he was civilised and decent and reasonable about it and happy to be used as an example, which was very nice to hear. Um, by contrast, the pub- PTV, the public transport uh, group, that the part of the government that was actually responsible for releasing the data continue to assert that it isn't really identifiable data because you need to combine the information with other information about the person in order to identify the data, which is true but completely irrelevant to the question of whether it's identifiable or not. And you demonstrated... Sorry, you demonstrated that it was quite easy to do. Sorry, Vanessa, please keep going. Yeah, it's not like Twitter is on private channels. mm. Yes, so they're sort of saying, oh, no, it's not identifiable because you need to do a bit of work to identify it, which is nonsensical. Mm. I don't really understand why they've taken that attitude. The Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner wrote a very thorough and very detailed report in which they found that it was personal information because it was identifiable. Uh, Public Transport Victoria did not accept that. Um, I don't really see how they can defend the position that they're defending. I've never seen data that was so totally inadequately de-identified. They really didn't do anything to modify the data to make it hard for somebody who knew a little bit of information about the person to identify them. 
Yeah, I, I, I noticed that um, uh, in your in your paper, you mentioned that the only data that was actually touched or, you know, attempted de-identification was um, this card ID field that they had generated to sort of replace the Mikey card number that that is the thing that attaches the card to you as an individual. Um, do you want to talk at all about like how how you think they generated that idea or, you know, is it a hash? Is it some kind of translation mechanism or algorithm? Like, do you know, how, do you know how that was generated and how randomized it was? So we don't know the exact method they used. Um, when we did look at it, it, it doesn't look like it's a hash because the output isn't truly random. It mm-hmm. looks to have some element of time in it because there's a certain gap in the numbers when they appear and new cards appear at the end of the, the sequence. So we're fairly certain that there's some kind of direct ma- mechanism to go from the original card ID to a different one. And that would normally have been something we would have looked at to try and reverse, but it was so easy to identify using just raw data that there really wasn't any mm-hmm. point in working on the effort to right. break that particular part because you could just look up two times and you you basically got the same information. Um, so that it's done, but it's not really done in a way which we would consider to be a safe way of doing it. We would mm-hmm. want to see a more robust and random output, not something which had some predictable pattern in it. That's a nice um, transition into the, the bit I want to get to, which is how do you do this well? Like, what is what are the techniques to actually um, randomize data so that people's identity is protected? And, and is it even possible? Like, do we lose too much granularity in the data to make it useful for research? So right. I think I think not releasing a person's detailed individual record without their consent is really the prime first step. Mm. But sorry, Chris, what were you going to say? Um, so I completely agree with Vanessa, and, and you can't really release this unit record level data. Um, if you're going to do analysis on that, then you should be doing it in your inside your organisation with researchers being brought in or under an agreement in which, as Vanessa said, the person's consented to that data being released. If you want to release some public information, then mechanisms like differential privacy are the way to do it, in which you're not actually releasing the unit record level data, you're releasing a count which is perturbed, so it is an element of randomization in it so that you shouldn't be able to get back to individual records. Um, the difference with that is that you're losing a lot of the granularity in the data because you're not getting individual trips, you're just getting, for example, counts in a particular location at a particular time. So the types of analysis you can do are much lower and there's not necessarily as interesting. So that's sometimes why you don't see that type of data released, but it had been done. So Transport for New South Wales had done exactly that when they released their Opal data. Um, and so how? what's the level of difficulty of some of those more complex release strategies? Like, I mean, it sounds like there there wasn't even a consideration of a trade-off um, in this instance, but like, what, where, at what point does the data stop being usable? So it really depends on what you're trying to use it for. And that's kind of why we'd like to see the end goal defined first, because then you can start working out whether you can release it in order to derive a good result from that, or whether you just can't do that publicly by releasing it. Um, the mechanisms like differential privacy do require an element of skill and experience to do them safely in that, again, these these things can be misused and if you do it incorrectly, then you might not get the protection that you should be getting. Um, so in the case of Transport for New South Wales, they had Data61 develop their technique and then they asked us to review it before releasing it. So there were, there are people out there who can do this and you'd hope that they would consider that before making large releases, um, particularly where it's not that they're releasing it every week. It's a rare event, so they could spend a bit more time speaking and engaging with the organisations and the academics who know about doing this um, and could find a way of safely releasing some data. Mm. 
Um, another another um, technique that was mentioned in the paper is this idea of having a more like kind of globby time frame and not getting so the the data that was released was specific to the second. Is that right? Yes. And is so so do, do you get significant improvements in terms of um, making it harder to identify individuals if you um, remove some of the granularity from that timestamp? So we looked at a various different um, truncations on the time. So we reduced it down to five-minute windows and then hours and eventually minutes and days. Um, effectively, you increase the number of points you need to find someone, but you don't actually eliminate the risk of being able to identify people um, because you've still got very identifiable information like location. So all it would take is a, a sequence of locations over a period of time, and unless someone has done the exact same on those same days, then you're still creating a unique index. Mm -hmm. So anytime you go somewhere slightly unusual, then that potentially becomes an, an identifying factor. Um, so yes, it would make it harder, but it wouldn't eliminate it. So if I've traveled to somewhere like Castlemaine and there's only a few of those data points and then it makes it very easy to spot me. But if I'm only going from Flinders Street up to Melbourne Central and back, it's much harder to work out who I am. Yes, so if your your points are only between you know two really popular locations, then the chances of finding you reduces down. So the, the people who are in that kind of big kind of group of people who aren't doing particularly unusual journeys, they become harder to find, but most of us will at some point take an unusual journey, or we have patterns which are naturally unusual anyway. Um, so for example, if you go on holiday, then your trips stop. So not having data in there can also be an identifying factor because suddenly the person who's covering you isn't there because they are genuinely going, you know, they're traveling still in that week. So there's a whole series of additional auxiliary information that you can start to look at. Mm. Um, we haven't done that analysis just because it was too easy to find people otherwise. Yeah, right. Um, Vanessa, can I pick up on, on, on what you were sort of alluding to about not releasing the data? It, what, what are the steps that we as individuals should be taking to, you know, advocate or lobby for better protections or, or better information or for it not to be released at all? Right, well, that's a very good question. Uh, we as individuals are not doing very well at the moment. Um, I think responsibility for the data that has already been released is a huge deal. We've now had two, in Australia, we've had two massive releases of sensitive, detailed, personally identifiable information, and in both cases the relevant public authority continues to pretend that it didn't happen. So that includes the Mikey release that we've been talking about and the Medicare and PBS release that was released by the Federal Department of Health back in 2016. In both cases, there are millions of affected individuals and very, very detailed records about those people that have been published on the internet. But there's not really very much that you can do about it if the relevant authority doesn't even admit that there's a problem. So I think trying to just identify and discuss the existence of a problem would actually be a huge step forward both at a state and federal level in Australia. They're not going to admit that they have to solve the problem or stop causing new problems if they don't acknowledge that a problem has already existed. Um, not, not that I, oh, sorry, please continue. No, no, go on. Uh, I was going to say, not that I'm wishing for bad outcomes, but I, in some ways I feel like um, a bad a bad actor or some example of something, you know, someone using this data in a malicious way would actually be a good illustrative example so that we can describe how, how much this can go wrong. 
Um, one one of the really sad things about it is that I think many of the most malicious misuses of data are probably undetectable. So one of the things that concerns me, for example, about health data are issues like discrimination or exclusion of people with stigmatised illnesses or mental illnesses or um, infectious diseases. If you don't know that the person that you've just applied for a rental or a job with knows that you have that problem and is discriminating against you on that basis, then I don't see how you would ever... Um, I don't see how you'd ever find out. Yeah, you have no counterfactual to apply it to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, I'm... I'm not that I would ever want Australia to become more like America, but maybe it's time for a class action. <laughs> I can I, I, I feel the frustration that you're describing and if we can't even get the relevant authorities to admit there's been a problem, how can we possibly move forwards and start start ensuring that we don't make these kinds of mistakes continuously in the future? Um, yep. Well, look, I okay. think I think maybe that's a good place to tie it off. Um, thank you so much, Vanessa and Chris, for coming in to chat to us. That was such a fascinating um, discussion. Um, I, I sure you. hope that, that we have more positive things to talk about in the future, but um, really thank you for your hard work in this field and exposing this kind of problem. Thank you. Triple R. You're in studio with Laura, Paul, and Dan. Um, thanks again to our interviewees, uh, Vanessa Teague and Chris Culnane, for that excellent discussion about Mikey data being re-identified. Um, so... We alluded at the beginning of the show to a little bit of VC gossip and slash schadenfreude. <laughs> um, I, I have to have a quick chat about this WeWork thing because it's so wild. There's such a, a weird world of soft money going on in tech at the moment. So if you're unfamiliar with the idea of WeWork, they're one of these co-working spaces um, and they basically are a rental company. They rent people offices in exchange for their money and yet they really want you to believe that they are some wild outray tech idea that's innovative and disruptive and a unicorn and so so what's been happening is that there's been um all of these sort of blustering attempts to to prop them up uh in the lead up to their um proposed ipo so they're going to take it public and and as that's been going on, the interest from investors hasn't looked great. So they've done this weird thing where they've halved and then halved again their valuation. So I think it started off at about $47 billion, if I remember correctly. That seems, that seems like a lot of money. It seems like a lot of money for a office rental company. And then it was halved again. And I think it's sitting around 10 at the proposed, proposed price point now. Um, but yeah, I've been reading all of this tech coverage around WeWork just like lapping it up I can't stop reading because it's so fascinating like um, The Verge has a piece saying WeWork isn't a tech company it's a soap opera and I dedicate this to the energy of we and it just it, it encapsulates the vibe so nicely like it's so bizarre I mean I think the thing the thing for me as, as that Verge article points out it's like WeWork has this kind of the glamour of a tech company but it's it's as you as you say it's not a tech company it is like a real estate company um but it's interesting how it's sort it's adopted the the trappings of of startup and you know move fast and break things that kind of tech culture ideology um but within this it's basically like rentier capitalism yeah model and and yeah the the marriage of that 
very traditional thing. And the fact that we're talking about it on a tech show when it's, it's it literally just owns a bunch of buildings. Yeah, a bunch of buildings. I mean, they're kind of like hopping on the bandwagon, like trying to get into the zeitgeist of the startup scene by trying to host startups. But that's not the same thing as being a startup. And there's, yeah, and there's a world where you kind of go, when you think about the data that you could, could accumulate about how people work together and co-working spaces and things like that, that you could build a technology company mm. like that. I maybe do have just pitched that to all of our <laughs> listeners. But like there is a world where, you know, a WeWork could have access, could become a data company about, mm. you know, best practice working. But that doesn't seem to be no embedded anywhere and look i i I worked briefly and we work and without like going into the the gory details i'll say i didn't love it there and there was some weirdness about the sort of the vibe the culture and part of it is that it's just it's very cookie cutter it's like they have this very kind of um sterilized uh aesthetic and it's like we have we want to look cool but we have to like follow the rules it's like (laughs) we want you to disrupt but only in extremely prescribed ways so like there's already this like weird tension going on when you spend time in that space where you're like oh follow the rules but be an innovator and you're like huh okay that's interesting so it's like they, they they're trying really hard to uh embody this disruption theater but then they also really want you to follow the rules so they they don't want to necessarily like um like accept what disruption looks like which is probably messier than they're comfortable with i mean i think at scale that disruption becomes challenging Mm. you know anyway if you're going to get 47 billion you know what are you yeah exactly and how can you possibly be worth that much money but like interestingly aside from just you know like ripping a shred their business model <laughs> um, there's a, there's actually been like plenty of proof of like actual nefarious dealings like rentierism you mentioned like it's it's you know like rent seeking in the purest sense um one of the things that i read about this week that i couldn't believe is this thing that adam newman the the ceo did which was buy the ip for the WeWork brand um and sell it back to the parent company for a tidy profit of six million um, yeah, Dan's looking at me like, what the? What? Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like a thing that can or should happen. <laughs> yeah, right? And yeah. that was just like one of the many things that's been coming out of the woodwork as people like investigate this story more. The thing that, one of the things as I was, I was as I was doing research for another project is, is looking at the broader idea of the Wii company and, and especially the like their entrepreneur school for kids. You know, it's like and kind of we framing, grow. Yeah, <laughs> framing it as your kids, kids are natural born entrepreneurs. I was like, um, is that okay? <laughs> Let's unpack that a little bit. And again, like coming back to those ideas of like, you know, tech culture and startup culture and like the, you know, we've talked in the past on the show about, you know, platforms and, plat- you know, platform capitalism, but these ideas that actually things like we live and, and we work and we grow, like becoming platforms for lives, mm. you know, and it becomes actually that's the end goal that we live. Yeah. And look, yeah. aside from just the pure waste of capital involved, one thing I want to flag is that there was another piece that was released by Info Security Magazine that said that WeWork was ha- had like atrociously weak Wi-Fi security <laughs> passwords. So, and I, I, I experienced this. They have it printed in a physical document, and so you can tell how often they change it because it's it's in your welcome pack, and apparently it's the same almost worldwide. Um, and what that means is that it was very easy for people to like attack and um, co-opt traffic from outside because it was very easy to like hack their networks. So, you know, it, there are real impacts to real people outside of just like 
egregious waste of money. So I think it's something to keep an eye on. Oh, and also Adam Newman did step down as CEO, I think, today. So the story continues to unfold, and I think um, I'm going to continue to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) The soap opera. Yeah, the soap opera. No doubt we'll report on it. Um, Um, But I I suppose we should talk about what else is going on in the world. There's there's some cool events coming up. Paul, do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, a couple of events um, that I sort of wanted to flag. Um, For those of you who aren't aware, Melbourne International Games Week is is happening uh, in a few weeks now, beginning of October. Um, And some smaller interesting events which are happening. um, Playable Cities Melbourne um, are having a public event uh, on the 10th of October at the Capitol Theatre. You can look up tickets for that on Eventbrite. Um, Playable City is a global network of cities that includes Sao Paulo, Tokyo, Bristol, um, Seoul, uh, amongst many others, uh, with Melbourne being the most recent um, addition. Um, It's a really exciting program because it's only, Melbourne's only just been inducted into the program, so this is the first public discussion about what it might mean. I think I saw an event that's coming up for this. It's like a... um uh, visual or sorry it's a, a augmented reality like whodunit game and you wander oh, yeah. around Melbourne City and try and work out like if you have clues in your augmented reality which happens on your phone and it's sort of an app that you follow yeah so Troy um, Innocent I, was yeah. who is instrumental in, in the Melbourne C- Playable Cities Network was one of the designers on that app so yeah it's all connected that's exciting I am signed up for that I'm excited to try it it Great. sounds like heaps of fun you should go to the event Th- as well yes I I will attempt to um, it is coming up for a crazy season I don't know about the rest of you my calendar's already open <laughs> absolutely nuts um, I, I, if someone was interested to do that whodunit game how would they find out about it Paul? Uh, so I think there are links to if you go to play the Playable Cities website um, which is playablecity.com um, there's a whole bunch of information about all the other cities but also specifically about Melbourne and specifically about Troy's work as well so you can find details of it at playablecity.com Excellent It is 7.59 we've been bite into it thank you again to Vanessa Teague and Chris Colnane for coming in to chat to us and thanks Paul and Dan for being excellent and hanging out with us in studio Well thank you Anytime This is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.